Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is... (gasps) Matt Lucas! It's only him. He's really here! It's only me. It's only... It's, it's only Sonia. Do you remember that? That was uh, Fresh Fields. That then became French Fields. Oh, Do you remember yes. the neighbour? Yeah. It's only Sonia. And you've brought French Fields for us to talk about. Well, <laughs> so I did once meet Anton Rogers. Really? It's a, a voiceover audition. He was a gentleman. And I've seen Julian McKenzie in the Woolsey dining with Eunice Stubbs, <laughs> but you? I didn't say anything. Just because I know them doesn't mean they know me, and so I didn't want to bother them. I know what you mean. I was sitting at, at a table in a restaurant next to Tom Courtney who is in my absolute favourite film, Billy Liar. Oh. And all I wanted to do was to just go and fanboil over him, but I just thought, he's having lunch. I'm just going to leave him alone. I can't yeah. bother him. Harry Hill is a friend of his. Is he? Yeah. There's an unexpected uh, nexus. There's an inn. I think they're both members of the Garrick Club. This is, oh, the, really? this is the kind of inn chat. We, you're, <laughs> I'm going to get you Courtney by the end of the day kills me. I'll get you Courtney. And, and I might him. even get you Bolum. <laughs> Those days are gone now that when people come up to people, they sort of 
asked them to pose for photographs and things, and it gets a bit intrusive. It's all selfish now, but I do, I do, there is that thing when you see someone and you think you know them, and then you realise, yeah, you do know them, but they don't know you, because oh, God. I had it when Gordon Kennedy was presenting the lottery. <laughs> and I was walking down, uh, I think it was Dean Street, and I saw him, I went, hello. And he just went, hello. And then just carried on walking. And then I realised, oh, you're, yeah, no, you just you present the lottery, and I'm just a man. <laughs> have, you, have you had the, the opposite thing where you see someone in a cafe and you think, you're off the telly, you're someone famous, and you're racking your brains to which, is it a Doctor Who, are you an extra in that? And you realise it's someone who gets the same train as you every morning. Right. And you've seen their face hundreds of times, but your brains put them as bit part actor in your head. No, but I do see, <laughs> I, I, when I used to, um, I was on Grinder years ago, and um, I remember I'd go to bars and then I'd spot people that I'd seen on Grindr <laughs> and think, oh, I know I know all your kinks. That's amazing. You've listed them. I've seen your Prince Albert and everything. Grindr that- makes it too easy to have an imagination, doesn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm not on Grindr anymore. But I remember uh, there's other ways of gay dating now. Of course, there's, we have Tinder, like everyone else, and things that, where one can be a little bit more demure. But when it started out, there was just Grindr. So I was on there saying... Would you like to go and have some shortbread and a hot chocolate somewhere? <laughs> Everyone else is going, well, how many inches are you? I said, well, that, round the waist, rather too many, I'm afraid. <laughs> because of the shortbread? Yes, <laughs> yes. All of which brings us on to Hoffman, of course. It's perfect. Well, you, you, you brought us exactly that man who, who, for whom this would be the perfect topic of discussion. Yes. You brought, it's so nice. Thank you for bringing something which I had probably forgotten. The, the gift you're giving to the nation today is... A Last Encore, which is a... Um, I think it's a collection by the BBC, actually. Yeah. Uh, it was a BBC double cassette originally. The Dream Format. Yeah, which came out, I would say, in the early 90s, I would think. Maybe late 80s. Yeah. And it's um, a compilation of some of the best comic sketches and monologues and improvised dialogues by Gerard Hoffnung. Who is actually best remembered as a cartoonist. Yes, he's the musical cartoonist. He was a friend of Roland Emmett and people like that, sort of those 50s, slightly Rococo, Festival of Britain-style cartoonists. That's right. He's most widely remembered as a, as a humorous cartoonist whose illustrations satirised the world of classical music and the life of the orchestra. And he also held these concerts where classical music would be played but messed around with. <laughs> London's Festival Hall and an interplanetary music festival, conductor Gerard Hoffner. The eminent artist then presented an operatic divertissement, a miracle of controlled stagecraft. Five operas for the price of one. It was rather wonderful. But uh, what is often not spoken about and what I love are his recordings where he is sometimes scripted, sometimes improvising, always in the character of a bumbling, posh old man, basically. And it's worth knowing before you hear any of this stuff that Hoffman himself died in his early 30s, very suddenly, without warning. And I was friendly with his widow, uh, who died recently, Annetta, and also uh, have met his son and daughter. He 
he died in the 50s very suddenly and I think it is probably the most significant loss to British comedy in the 20th century was his early death because I think his comic voice and brain was so great that he would have, without any shadow of a doubt, gone on to become a household name like, mm. like Milligan, Spike yeah. Milligan or Peter yep. Cook. Yep. Um, he feels like he's just jo- about to join them. They're all yeah. about to join up. It's like he's just kicking off and then he died. And it's it's one of the... It is, I think it is the single greatest loss to British comedy because he should have been around another 40, 50 years. I hope it won't embarrass you, no, but could you, t- could you tell me something about... Just ask me anything you like. Well, could you tell me something about your childhood? Yes, certainly. What do you want to know? Uh, well, just yes. if you'd start at the beginning. Well, I was born at a very early age. As a matter of fact, I was two when I was born. And he was absurdly talented, wasn't he? He was well, like he was like Spike, but with extra bits added on as well. Because yeah. he was verbally brilliant. He was a great artist. He was a great musician. Um, he was a great thinker. He was a great actor. He had so many strings to his bow. A political activist. He was yes. involved. With, he was a Quaker. Involved with the CND. That's right. Although he was reform. Jewish, but he he identified more with the kind of humanist Quaker yeah. mm. approach. Around that time, when sort of all the master marches and things are going on, when sort of British culture is just about to turn itself upside down, he turns up. And he turns up playing a buffer. Uh, and that, that voice, that incredible voice, that you cannot believe he's 33, 34. Yes, and he's got a voice. He sort of talks like that, you yeah. see. And it's rather wonderful. It's like, it's like he's was... woken up Bagpuss. It's that yes. sort of yawning Colonel Blimpish thing. It's like a. He's got that in common with Willie Rushton, Willie, who's another cartoonist and satirist who had a wonderful performing voice that's round and fruity like a cake and just becomes a personality on panel games. He's sort of. He's one of the first celebrities to to transmit his personality not necessarily through written work or through acting but through being a celebrity on as a panel game contestant because he was on the formative version of just a minute or something this is like. willie rushton you're talking no no oh, this is, oh, this hoffnung is hoffnung. was on that. hoffnung sort of broke through to sort of public consciousness it was through called 60 seconds something wasn't yeah it? something was very nearly the phrase just a minute so he's a very sort of oddly a very modern a comedian who works in a very very modern form as in he's not known for uh, being in steptoe and son or or being a great writer he's just known for being gerard hoffnung Yes, and I, I mean, it would have been fascinating to have met him and to try and work out how much of his radio persona uh, <laughs> existed w- yeah. when you were face-to-face with him. I mean, that voice, obviously, I imagine, you can't really put on 100%. He must have sounded somewhat like that. Well, the point was that I wondered whether you travelled by air. No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that at all. I, I don't... What do you mean, by air? In an airplane. Oh, I see. Oh, well, I have done, yes, yes. I do. I, I have done. I, I don't like it. They they had a a nanny goat sitting next to me on the seat. You mean Just literally? Yeah. Yes, a real nanny goat. I think it's absurd. They, they, I, I would certainly never go up in an aeroplane again. Where was it going? I didn't ask where it was where going. Where were you going? I was going to Rome. Presumably. I didn't enter any sort of kind of conversation with it at all because I, I always like to keep myself to myself when I travel. They give you chewing gum to, to plug in your ears. The, probably the best-known thing he's known for is the bricklayer monologue yeah. from the Oxford Union. Oxford Union, yeah. Which is a weird thing. When I was first introduced to him, I, I, someone played me, played me a 10-inch of that that belonged <laughs> to their family. As that was, it was a vinyl 10-inch of him addressing the Oxford Union, which is a load of sort of almost like Jasper Carrot routines where he reads out insurance claims. It's that kind of routine <laughs> where it's, it's found objects and, and, and quite dad 
jokes and he's great and I went uh. and then you said listen to the rest of it and I had never heard any had you heard this stuff no the, 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 no. the interviews the interviews the, with, with Charles Richardson oh, Charles Richardson that, that so is that, a whole different world yeah so that's what that's what I love the, the interviews with Charles Richardson they are exquisite and extraordinary and my go to whenever I'm feeling down I'll either watch Queen at Live Aid or I'll watch <laughs> uh, listen to, to Gerard Hoffman they are the two things if a British yeah. Space probe went into orbit. That's what you'd send. That's what I take with me. And I, and I, <laughs> I was doing stand-up comedy, and I was indirectly influenced by Hoffman because I had created this character called Sir Bernard Chumley mm. uh, when I was sixteen, and by the time I, when I was eighteen, I started doing stand-up comedy on the London circuit, and I did that for four and a half years. And um, Sebastian Chumley spoke like that, you know. <laughs> and um, uh, he was an old theatrical raconteur, a kind of Ned Sheeran, Peter Ustinov, had these supposedly hilarious anecdotes. And mm. he was an actor who wasn't getting much work. And because I was performing in stand-up clubs and the Edinburgh Festival at midnight, and by then working with David Williams. Uh, the the material became a lot more shocking and a lot more uh, a lot sharper and incisive. Um, but when Sir Bernard started out, he was more of a, a, a sort of just a fruity old man, you know, <laughs> around and sort of gentle. You know. That was partly because I had done a lot of youth theatre. I'd been in the National Youth Music Theatre at thirteen. I'd been in a West End play at 14, the National Youth Theatre at 16. So a West End play at 14? Yeah, yeah. And, Which I, one? and I, it was called The 15 Streets. It was a Catherine Cookson play. And I went to open auditions and, and got a small, very small part. And it starred Owen Teal, who, who now is known uh, for Game of Thrones. Oh, um, right. But at the, the time was best known for an advert in which he was a milkman. <laughs> but, um, uh, but a lovely man. And, and, and so I'd met all these kind of fruity theatrical types. But I'd also seen these two things, and one was uh, when when Harry Enfield did Norbert Smith, yes. a life, just a brilliant oh. thing. And again, I mean, I could easily have brought that in mm. as my seminal piece because that was hugely influential on me. And and in that, there's a character that Harry himself does not play uh, called Sir Donald Stuffy, which is obviously <laughs> he's a he's a, he's a, a Donald Sindon, Donald Wolfit yes. sort of um, homage. And he's there, and the actor playing him is wonderful, and he talks of name drops, and he sort of says, Rexy Poo Harrison and Dame Anna Neagly Weagly, and he sort of has these terrible nicknames for everybody. And, I, and, and me and my brother, we just loved this particular character. And I'd also seen a video of Harry Enfield doing a character called Sir Harry Stockracy, in which oh. he was going, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, no, oh, no, oh, yes. <laughs> and he had a few lines, but mainly was going, oh, yes, oh, no. And I found out later that um, Sir Harry Stockracy was inspired by Gerard Hoffner. Really? Oh, right. But I had never heard of Gerard Hoffner, and I'd just seen a little bit, a minute or two yeah. of Harry Stockracy. And those little bits in um, Norbert Smith are life. And then I sort of took that and, and, and did my own kind of riff yeah, on yeah. it. And that became Sir Bernard. And, and later on down the line, fed into this uh, character that I did more recently called Pompidou. And mm. um, so when I, uh, I was already doing Sir Bernard, and then I got to university. And in my second year at university, I lived with these four guys. And one or two of them had uh, tapes of... Hoffman and we would oh, right. gather round in our we we you know the five of us in this sort of uh, rented 
house in this very dodgy area, which got robbed while I was in it on my own. Oh my which was terrifying. <laughs> uh, and we would get stoned, and we would listen to Hoffman night after night after ah. night. And that's pretty much... Because there was no internet then, yeah, you know, yeah. it was, well, there probably was the beginnings of the internet, but none of us had it. Not on cassette and anyway. No, and we didn't have Sky TV or any mm. of that. So the TV would have turned itself off by then, wouldn't it? There was nothing to yeah, watch yeah, on exactly. TV by then, Night Network or, uh, <laughs> you know, Mariella Frostrup. Yeah. yeah. Hitman and her. Yeah, <laughs> talking, exactly. So, so far more interesting to go and listen to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and um, Gerard Hoffnung. And- I suppose what you're getting with Gerard Hoffnung and what Harry was doing there is something which is in Bernard Chumley and then in Pompidou taken to a huge degree is someone who just makes a noise. Yes. Because Hofflung, what you're laughing at is partly what he's saying, but mainly it's the noise he makes. Well, I played Hofflung in the end in a radio play, yeah. Yeah. And that was, uh, I felt that was a great honour you know, mm. and again, I think that's I think that's when I first met Annetta, and and Annetta gave me, which I'm very lucky to have because I think there's a collection of, you know, the, the collection remains of yeah. Hoffman's amazing work, and I went round to her house once to to look at it. Yes, um, but she gave me a, a, an original, wow. which, is, which 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 I've got at home, and and so I think it's one of those money can't buy things. But it's a tragically yeah, really. finite supply. Because well, that's it, and he and he's part. You know, as an as an illustrator, he's part of. You know, he, he stands alongside Ronald Searle, totally. really, mm. and he's very much that sort of school, uh, a, a great celebration of the raucousness of British life. I think at that the kind of post-war era. I saw you coming out of a picture house that shows oh, yes. French films. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, me. I adore going to the cinema. You go a lot. Oh, I love it. Uh, how yes, often do you... I love it. How often do you go, Zerul? Oh, I go every day. Do you? Yes. And do you prefer these foreign films? Yes. No, I don't mind. Anything, anything, anything. I do you understand it. French? No, yes. Italian? Well, a little bit, yes. yes. Italian. Yes. What's fascinating about him as well, reading his biography... Is he's German? He's a Jewish yes. German emigre. He escaped from effectively Nazi Germany. That's right. Um, and he's got that thing which I suddenly struck me was he had in common with, say, Stephen Fry's family, who are sort of Hungarian migrants. And you've got with um, George Mikesh, who wrote How to Be English, How to Be a Brit, rather, and How to Be Decadent. Those guides to English life. That he's like he's a spy. He's an alien in disguise. He's come here, and I did wonder whether that noise, that sound he makes is what the English sound like to an outsider. Well, and it's quite cruel. It, it's, it, what he does is brilliant because he speaks in that very posh accent, but there's one piece that he does where he has his father there. Oh, it's is, unbelievable. Yes, which is him as well. And the father speaks like this, you see. I mean, he, the father is Germanic. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting because my family, were, my grandmother well. my grandmother spoke, you know, my grandmother came over, I think, in 38, so probably around the same time right. as, as Hoffnung from from Germany and so she had that accent but my grandfather and his brother who were also Jewish spoke I mean you know my great uncle uh, oh. spoke like that you know absolutely had adopted it completely uh, well well I, I mean he was born in the UK but our family even though we were Jewish very much spoke like that so the way Hoffnung speaks Jews have been very successful here because uh, in part because they've assimilated and yeah. integrated so effectively yeah into yeah. British culture. So when you see 
the Hasidic Jews yeah. and the Haredi Jews with their hats and their beards in Stamford Hill and Golders Green and parts of Edgware, you think, oh, that's the Jewish community. But actually, the Jewish community is much bigger yeah. and yeah. much further spread out. And you meet Jewish people in this country who are very well spoken indeed. Well, and disguise. Gerard Hoffman seemed to very quickly, I mean, he must have learned very proper English, but he yeah. speaks English better than English people. No, totally. He came over yeah. with no English as a schoolboy. Right. He sort of North London, Hampstead Garden suburb kind of way. That's right. He's, he uh, I went in. to Hampstead Garden suburb where his widow lived. Yeah. Oh, right. And he's assimilated. He put the costume on so brilliantly, but he is definitely, I mean, on the, the Richardson interviews, one of the things that makes it delightful, I think, is that Richardson isn't English. He's Canadian. I think. Mm, yes. So he's talking to an outsider. That bluster and bufferishness that, that he's, oh, oh, and he's not responding to him. And he's being, he's getting in the way and he's not listening. He's pretending to be deaf and he's not answering the questions. And you think, that's Boris Johnson. That's yeah, something absolutely. the British upper classes just it do. It is. And it's, and it's re smog. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's all, all, all that lot. Mr. Hoffnung, you always appear to me to be particularly immaculate all the time. Immaculate? I don't look immaculate. I always look very clean and neat. Well, that's... Don't that's how you can say that. Well, that's what I mean, you see, by immaculate. Oh, you said I looked immaculate. Yes, well... That doesn't mean clean and neat. Well, I've always thought I it I look did. very tidy. But immaculate, that's just yes? what that means, Mr. Hoffman. I mean, uh, yes, you yes, must yes, deliberately yes, be trying right. to... No, as long as we just leave it at that, I'm quite satisfied. Uh, do, do you think young people, do they still gather around and listen to comedy albums like we grew up listening to Derek and Clive and uh, even the you know the not the nine o'clock news albums yep. the spitting yeah, image albums yeah around the horn cassettes around the horn cassettes yeah. Julian and Sandy had yeah. all of that big and, big and yeah and loved all of that and my father had Stan Freeberg as well and yeah. Tom Lehrer and I would listen to those but I don't know are our kids growing up now still listening to that so I suppose they're looking at YouTube and finding it there aren't they yeah I mean it's all, a lot of this stuff you can get all this Hoffnung stuff we're digging around today a lot of it has been put on YouTube by people needle drops and, and clips of, of things what happens when you listen to audio though is you listen to it alone with headphones on and you learn it. And the thing you learn is the sound of things. And I think a lot of people, when they talk about uh, their comic influences, if they, if it was a cassette or a, a, an LP, you you played it again and again, way more than you probably even would do a video yeah, or a DVD. Yeah, and, and I absolutely agree with that. The repetition of it was huge. And, and people, do, look, I used to watch Vic Reeves' Big Night Out in, during that period, and I would watch it again and again yeah. and again. Yeah. I know from people tell me they would watch Little Britain again. You know, it had that thing. Yeah. But, but there was just something about listening yeah, yes. there's an intimacy. It's like yes. like how we're talking now. Yeah. You know, somebody might be on a plane or on a car journey listening to this, or on a long coach journey or whatever, and they've got their headphones on. And there's hello, you. I'm sorry about the traffic. You'll get there soon. And <laughs> and uh, there is a there's an intimacy about this that doesn't exist on TV or yes. Video. No, I uh, I we had I, I've had a, a lovely pussy. You know, he, he used to um, sit at table with us. You know, you know, you used to hold a lighted candle between its paws until dinner was over. That cat did. Why? Well, he, that's the way he liked to. Uh, he he was uh, full of convention, you know, full of formality. You what don't else, find cats like that now. No, it's very no. interesting. What no, else did he do? He was the most interesting cat. What else would he do? Well, isn't that enough? When you listen to the Oxford Union things, there's a crowd laughing at him. Mm. So it, it does help the fact. I mean, you can hear him pulling and, and, and pushing at the audience. To, to The timing is immaculate. He, he, he plays with reactions and, and things. And you can hear that. It's great. It's him with a live audience. The Richardson interviews, there's no audience. There's no laugh track, which is unusual for sort of 
1950s comedy. Yeah, that is. This is, that's this is private weird. and intimate, and it's got that in common with Derek and Clive. You're not sure whether it's funny or not. And a real sort of Vic and Bob kind of way, you go, is it just me who thinks this is funny? And some of the things he says are so nonsensical, you think, oh, this is just for me. It's way more intimate than the sound of that baying, very positive audience at the Oxford Union. This is weird. And Peter Cookish, it reminded both of us of Why Bother, the Peter Cook-Chris Morris dialogues. And also of the um, of A Life in Pieces, which is where he played uh, Arthur Street Greenlee, Green, yeah. Green, talking Green. to... Yeah. Who was interviewing him then? Was, was it, it Clive Anderson, or have I made that up? No, it was Ludwig Kennedy, wasn't uh, it? Was right. And why French hens? I chose French hens because they're rather more sophisticated than the English hen, La Poule Anglaise, which is a rather dull creature. As Winston Churchill said, if the hen should ever leave the Tower of London, it really wouldn't matter very much. This is definitely the grandfather of pieces like that, isn't it? Surely, even with the kind of... You know the outsider thing you were talking mm. about? Is this what the English sound like to someone who was born in Germany? It even gets out... It get, there's a beautiful example of the observational version of that as well, which is when he, uh, Richardson asks him if he likes sport, and he says, no, I like watching some sport now and then. What sports do you... Uh, yes, do you I like, like that sport where a lot of people are asleep on a lawn, you know. Oh. They, they, they sit around in deck chairs. Oh, yes, yes. There's some people in the in the middle of the lawn, they do something. There's a chap with a, a barber's coat on. You consider that sport? Yes. Oh, yes. And then uh, it starts raining, you know? Yes. Yes. And then they all wake up. Then somebody says, well played, sir. I like oh, I that. I see. You're talking much. about this uh, this game of cricket. 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 Oh, yes. That's yes, right. Yes, 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 I like cricket. And it's brilliant as an observation about well, that's what that looks like. To yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's an insider and an outsider. I, he, he also does a brilliant um, anti-joke as well, which is the uh, a shaggy dog story, which is the hedgehog yeah. story. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. is great because it doesn't finish at all where you think it's going to. Finish. No. Is that the one that's got the brilliant? Like, is this a long story? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Expect him to say no, yes, and he keeps on going. Uh, there's, there's a. I'm now thinking because the Colonel Blimp thing, of course, Powell and Pressburger, they're outsiders as well. They're migrants as well. There's yes, these people who sort of yeah. preserve the very essence of Englishness, who've come from outside to observe it and then say, this is the best and the worst of you. Because what the format of these interviews is, is is the worst and most obstructive interview you could go go. Yeah, yeah, he's really he's really unhelpful. <laughs> And also, the other thing, of course, is he's improvising, right? Yeah. Yeah, but do you know what? He's well, doing He's doing a, a thing that it, it only occurred to me after about the fourth one. They're all up sort of six or seven minutes in length, aren't they? So they're in, immensely consumable. You can listen to them again and again and again because they're like songs, basically. Mm. Um, there's something he does which, which is a real break in the rules of improv, which is that he says no a lot. Yes, he but in a funny Richardson way. He shuts Richardson down a lot. Well, sometimes he's just in a bad mood from the beginning. Which what are you love. talking about now? <laughs> Oh, what are you talking about now? <laughs> Haven't you got enough now? Doesn't he say that at one point? Yeah. What's, the, what's the one? I, I don't know these things. I, I'm so hot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know these things. <laughs> yes, it's, one of my favourites was... The was irritation, um, yeah. I, I, have, I have no reason for anything I say. <laughs> When he's but talking I, about moon monkeys. Moon monkeys is the riff that you go, this is, where's this going? It's, <laughs> it's that Richardson wants to talk about going to the moon or, or just astronomy and moon missions and space race. And, and often I'm introduced to the idea of moon monkeys and then won't stop talking about them. <laughs> and he's got nothing to say about them because he just made them up. <laughs> mm. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. He gave me a line because I lost my hair when I was six. And so, you know, and, and when you meet little children, they often just go, you've got no hair. That's the sort of thing mm. they say, they point at you. Less so now because I'm an adult oh. and children see lots of adults with no hair. So it's really not that startling to them. Yeah. But when I was a much younger man, so from the age of about 19 or 20, once I was listening to Hoffnung, when kids would say, you know, you've got no hair, I would be able to say, I do have, my hair grows inwards. Mm. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> which, is what I, which is what I now tell people. And it's a Hoffnung line. It is. So it comes out my of your... hair it grows inwards. And it comes days. out of your chin. And it's such a shame it's just hair. It could be much more useful as watercress or Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> what a waste of time it is, shaving. You can hear jokes coming into his mind and then being missed, and it's still funny. But when he gets one that's really profitable and it suddenly starts to become funny, and you can feel a comic mind just about to mash two things together. The one that got me was where he was talking about going for 
a long walk and having a picnic. And if it's raining, he goes for a long walk indoors, round and round the dining table. And well, once he forgot his pipe and had to walk backwards round the dining table for two hours to go and get it. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just such a brilliant. That's as good an idea as what time is it? Eccles as an idea. Yeah. As you talk about comic. I, Comic invention, that's brilliant. Is it the, is it the, I'm trying to think what it is, because I haven't heard it for a while. Is It It might be the penknife story. Oh, God. Where, it, where he, he says he bought a penknife, but he couldn't open it. <laughs> yes. So he had to go and buy another penknife. <laughs> to open to the penknife. Then he couldn't open that, so he had to buy another one. And he ends up buying about 20 of them. There's just comic riffs going on, and he do wonder, because he's... This is this has been left behind, and it sounds they sound like almost like they're private tapes. They were yeah. done for their own amusement or something, which is just a delightful, real Peter Cook and Dudley Moore thing. You yeah, feel privileged. Not, to listen well, you're to them. right when you say they've been left behind. I mean, you you didn't know about them, no. And they're really, really good. They're as good as any comedy you've ever heard. Yeah, they're yeah. absolutely fantastic. They're as good as Alan Partridge in The Office. They're as good as everything. They're much older. But they're absolutely brilliant. They sound thoroughly modern. Yeah, and they sound very fresh, and people just don't know of their existence. And I it's think, called, so I do want to say it again, it's called A Last Encore. Yeah. Um, and, then, and the tapes do exist in other forms now. I think uh, there's a more comprehensive collection, perhaps, than The Last Encore. You can certainly get them as MP3s and things. But it's, yeah. it's, what's, what's so baffling about them is that, that Hoffnung, because he's known for the bricklayer monologue, which is brilliant, Yeah. It's a piece of verbal slapstick, which is a rare thing. Someone just telling a physical story through the power of their voice. When I had fixed the building, there was a lot of bricks left over. (laughs) (laughs) I hoisted the barrel back up again and secured the line at the bottom and then went up, listen, and filled the barrel with extra bricks. Then I went to the bottom and cast off the line. (laughs) Unfortunately. But that's a piece of business, a piece of comic business that I I looked up on Snopes the internet website for investigating uh, the truth or, or falseness of stories. It's really, oh, really I good. Don't know about it's this. great. It's been around for donkey's years. Well, I, Someone, I don't know if it does exist. I oh, might have to go on there to see if it does. It does exist. Yeah. And they, they dug it up and they found a, a source of that story to 1895 is the first time they can find that in a newspaper anywhere. So it's a story that's been doing the rounds for ages. But that's the first thing anyone recommends. If you type Hoffnung into Google, it comes at Hoffnung, uh, the Bricklayer's Lament. Yeah. And you listen to that and that is lovely but it's incredibly old-fashioned. I mean, it's a Victorian story. So your your first impression of him is that he is someone from the past and he's got an old man's voice. So you think, oh, that's sort of old. Yes. And then so you hear these interviews and you go, oh, God, he is fast that's and right. new. And, and by the way, when we were listening to these tapes in uh, 94, Chris Morris was doing stuff around then as well, um, I think on BBC Bristol or something like that. Yeah. Or, or some local radio. Either, on GLR. And or GLR, like, yeah. maybe it was GLR. I know it was local radio and I'd been given some tapes of those. And so we were listening to Chris Morris as well. Yeah. And we, we the, he was of the same quality. And Hoffman stood alongside the very best of what was, you know, of Chris Morris and Coogan and Iannucci and yeah. all, the, all that, Marba, all that stuff. Um, and still does. He's also, he clearly shares a very dynamic playfulness with someone like Chris Morris as well. Because when I was reading about his biography, I was reading about some of the concerts that he did. There was one concert where he invited William Walton up on stage 
to conduct one note of Belshazzar's Feast. <laughs> Belshazzar's Feast, to put this in context, is about a 45-minute piece for a very big choir, soloists and orchestra. And he got William Walton up on stage to, to conduct one note of it, and it's the one note of it that isn't music. There's a point where the baritone solo says, And in that same night was Belshazzar the king slain. And the choir all shout, Slain! And that was the one note he got William Walton up on stage to conduct. You think, wow, you've brought him along here to completely waste his and the audience's time because it's funny. Because it's such a great grift, isn't it? Yeah, he was, conceptually, he was just really ahead of other people, I think. Um, And... Like I say, what else would have come from him had he lived? There's not a single one of these podcasts that goes by where we don't say comedy is music. Comedy is music, comedy is rhythm. People with a feel for music find it easier... Lots of musicians are comedians and vice versa. People with a love for comedy have a love for music. They cross over so much. And this is like Tom Lehrer. Or something. This is someone... But listening to the, the sounds he's making, he's not a precise, by-the-dots musician. This is jazz. This is crazy stuff. This is looseness. The idea of sitting down and improvising, I don't know who else is doing that at the time, saying, we don't know what we're going to say. This character is strong enough to hold your attention. It doesn't matter whether what I say, it will be funny. There's a trust in it. And I don't know how much they had to edit for giggles. I, they keep a straight face brilliantly. Yeah. I wondered, I, it's, it's very difficult to tell, but I couldn't detect any editing. A bit of me thinks that these might have been, that was the take. No one's doing this at that time, are they? I mean, no, or even particularly now. Yeah, no, I suppose comedy's being reinvented at the time by Milligan and by, by Gorton and Simpson and things, but not in this but way. But this is before them. This is even earlier than Gorton and Simpson, I would say. But it's and just incredible to listen yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. I, like I say, I think I think it's the best. Do you play tennis or golf no, or do you I swim? Or... I swim, I swim, yes. Do you? I swim, do you? yes. I love swimming. Where do you swim as a rule? I, I swim in the water. Should we just stop doing comedy now? Would that would that save time? If we just all just just did. Did you ever did you ever find that? Have you, is there any, ever anything you've watched? Uh, you know, there's this the story that Reese Shearsmith tells, which is that uh, Reese and Steve who lived were living very near Jackson's Lane, um, sort of Highgate Archway. Yeah. Uh, where me and David Williams were doing our very first ever previews for our first show together in '95. And they came to, I think, our second or third ever show uh, together, which was before we'd gone to Edinburgh. And the following year, we, we, we met them and we got to know the League of Gentlemen. They were handing out flyers for their show in our queue to people that were coming to our show. Yeah. Reese said, oh, you know, we came to see your show last year. And we thought, well, we might as well give up now. And I was like, well, <laughs> then I went to see the League of Gentlemen's show. And I thought, well, I'm bloody glad you didn't give up. And roll on to, I think, two years later after in 98 when Reese came over to my house because I just made with David uh, Sir Bernard Stately Holmes a series of six mm, yeah, 10 yeah. minute films much maligned and <laughs> uh, and and quite fairly I would say and and uh, but directed by Edgar Wright actually oh. and they had just done the first series of the League of Gentlemen and and the idea was they were going to he was going to put on the first episode of that and then I was going to show a couple of 
Yeah. You know, and we, we would see each other all the time because we only lived about half a mile from each other. I said, well, go on, put yours on first. You know, and I was really excited to see it. And, well, we watched the whole series. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was the most breathtaking, game-changing piece of television I'd seen since Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. Yeah. Um, you know, Big Night Out, the day-to-day, and then I think The League of Gentlemen, because they were so good live, but this... And then we put on a couple of episodes of... <laughs> Sabonis take the homes. I was like, oh, well, we don't need to watch the whole thing. <laughs> and I was, you know, and it was a yeah. case of like, I might as well give up now. They are the kings. And I and I remember thinking, oh, maybe we're in the wrong game. Maybe we are in the wrong game. We had a very similar thing where we first, but around the same time, maybe a couple of years later, and we bumped into, we got to know uh, Robert Popper and Peter Serafinovich. Yeah, who we, are friends as well. And we were doing Family Examiner and we thought, we are pretty good. We are pretty good at weird little things about about the about things that are set a bit in the past that they're well observed. And they said we've made this little uh, this little show. Look around they, you. Yeah, right. and we we sat we went for a curry with them. They described it. They, and the thing that really made me laugh, they said it's it's set in exactly 1980, which made me laugh. Not a year before and not a year afterwards. And we were imagining what it would be like. And I went, I know what it will be a bit like. And we went around their place and we got really drunk. And they got out a VHS of it and put it on. And we sat there pinned to the wall, going, "We are just not." going to be able to keep up with this you i thought this would be a bit like something i'd made because the idea was very similar to something we we like doing i know the skills involved in this and watched it and went oh god you bastards you well there's absolute an, bastards. there's an authenticity isn't there yeah. and i think look around you beautifully caught the the banality and the slowness and the details and the the minutiae of that of that world calcium You may know it as Ginny, or Ninny, or Peter's Peg. But whatever you call it, calcium, valency 1, atomic weight 44, is one of the most important elements known to mankind. Well, I'm I'm going to make a link here then. I'm going to propose, nominate Robert Popper as the inheritor of the esteem that we hold Gerard Hoffman in. (laughs) Because I actually think as a humorist, someone whose talent and voice is so distinctive. Yes. And also, there's there's no spite in what uh, Hoffman does. He never punches downwards. And Robert Popper is the same. And I base this again on, on, you know, if you know Robert Popper, you'll know him from Look Around You. And you'll also know him because he's the writer creator and producer of Friday Night Dinner. Oh, and you may know the the Robin Cooper letters. Mm, yeah, yeah. But the but but actually Robert's real genius can be heard in these phone calls that he has made to radio stations, which you may have heard. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, and I, they've never been commercially released, but I've had them for again <laughs> probably nearly 20 years. And I've done a few of these phone calls with Robert as well. <laughs> Um, so, so you can hear me in in the background sometimes as the nagging husband when he's playing. Um, and Robert has an amazing ability to be of indistinct gender when he phones radio stations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sometimes when he calls and people say sir, he corrects them just very gently as madam. And sometimes when people say madam, he corrects them gently as sir. But he does wonderful phone calls to radio DJs. And TV phone-ins, actually, where he'll he'll phone in sort of those Nigerian Christian um, <laughs> uh, evangelical yeah. uh, hosts, and and he'll call them in. But he'll he'll he calls in with the gentlest, most unremarkable of stories, and he will call in and just say that he's you know got a bit of heartburn, 
or it just it's it's beautifully unremarkable. I think he's the inheritor of, of Hoffman, actually. Oh, with sleep, I'm I don't know if it's because of my I'm seventy four, mm. um, but I only require about two and a half hours sleep a night. Good grief. Um, I'm a quite a sort of lively, lively person, yeah. and uh, I normally go to bed about half past eleven and rise about two thirty, really, because um, I, I work. I sort of keep myself busy and work throughout the night. Yeah. Um, what do you do? Well, I write poetry for a local magazine, and also I have my own business, which I've been, which has been a family business, and we make soup, onion soup. And, um, you make onion soup? Make onion soup, which we, we distribute to uh, delicatessen. Robert also has, he has really big balls comedically, in that, like Hoffnung, he will phone in without an idea in his head, <laughs> and it will come. And I honestly, we've spent evenings and evenings and evenings together, but Robert is the absolute king of the funny phone call. But there's nothing nasty about what Robert does, and there was nothing nasty about what Hoffnung did. And I think I often envy their true ability, because so much of, of you know, the work that I've been you know that I'm me and David are remembered for um was quite shocking and I and I and sometimes I you know when I look back at Little Britain I I rather prefer you know the Margaret Margaret that yeah, kind yeah. of the yeah. slightly yeah. sillier the execution of those sketches and and the, and the way those sketches developed probably my favorite ones in the show more so than the shocking yeah. sort of spiteful stuff and when I listen to Robert and when I listen to Gerald Hoffman that's you know, it, that's what I admire as well. And I, I know I sound like a sort of old vicar in a no, it's true. church hall Weaponized saying how wonderful it is. whimsy is quite powerful. To, actually, yeah. to be able to do whimsy with enough weight behind it, it doesn't yeah. just fly away. Vic and Bob always managed it as yes. well, didn't they? That, that, that you know, that, that you, never, you never did, I mean, occasionally you do now, but you never did hear swearing in their work. Mm. And again, like I sound like someone's grandpa, but it's just, I hate it. Sometimes when you hear a bad comedian swear, you just think, oh, you haven't got any jokes, have you? There's the thing about listening to Hoffman, which I get. So you know, I love going to watch stage musicals, and when I and, and the best feeling I get, you know, when I'm watching them, is oh, I can't wait to to listen to the soundtrack of this again. Yeah. You know, I can't wait to hear that song again. Mm. And when I was listening to Hoffman, I'm always like, oh, I can't wait till it finishes. I can listen to it all again. <laughs> what a beautiful thought. No, but I'll tell you what I don't find funny <laughs> is basically anything that I was sort of told to listen to by those boys in my class. You know, the boys in my class would go, Lucas, you're such a prick, you don't even know who Pink Floyd are. Yeah, yeah. You know when you're like 15, there's boys yeah. with long hair, I had no hair, and they were kind of <laughs> slim and they wore leather jackets. Lucas, you're such a prick, you don't even know Stairway to Heaven. I know all the words. <laughs> so those kind of people. So there was a guy who I'm not going to name, but there was a guy in my year at school who was very sort of possessive of of music, TV, yeah. comedy, you know, and, and, and it, it used to bug me because he would he was thought of as being quite funny in the class, but all of his laughs came from him reciting lines from oh Blackadder. God. <laughs> they, they weren't, he, you know, because so he, he knew them verbatim. Yeah. So everybody was like, oh, he's really, really funny. And I was like, I was trying to come up with funny things myself, but they yeah. weren't. They were not funnier than Blackadder. No. So, and he was a very kind of confident performer, so he was doing all of that. But I remember... I remember it sort of put me off those shows. Anything yeah. that he liked, that he then sort of owned, took ownership of. And there were a few little gang of kids I at mean, school. Comedy is so and tribal. Comedy yeah. is very tribal. And it's your identity. Exactly. And they, they took real ownership of these 
particular routines on Saturday Live or, or, or whatever it was. It was at Red Dwarf at the time. It was, it was Blackadder. Because I didn't like them. I sort of didn't really like the yeah. shows that they liked. My dad introduced me to a lot of comedy and, you know, he introduced me to 40 Towers and Hancock and, <laughs> I mean, all good stuff. My dad, my dad had a great taste in comedy. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, we would watch with him and Harold Lloyd. So, so, so it was a, it was a great a grounding. Yeah, but when I was sixteen, when I when Vic Reeves' Big Night Out started, that was my show that I found. Yeah. Nobody told me to watch it. I found it for myself, and I had I had my own sense of ownership. And then I'm sure at Sixth Form College, me, Alex, and Claire irritated the rest <laughs> of the class because we were doing "You Wouldn't Let It Lie," yeah. and yeah. you know, "You Lie and Get," no, "You Lie and Get," and everybody else. So we became the people that like. We were going, you're so sad because you don't know Vic Reeves Big Night Out. And we had all our private jokes. Yeah. So we then became the tormentors. <laughs> What's that lovely Victoria Woodline? I'm sorry I don't find humour funny. <laughs> but League of Gentlemen were big fans of hers. Yeah, you can hear as that. Well. Yeah, you can hear fans. We, I remember going to, I think, Jeremy Dyson's flat one Christmas and watching, again, about 20 years ago, and watching, um, spending the evening watching, spontaneously watching Victoria Wood. And it's actually one of my regrets which is that David and I had this series on Paramount Comedy Channel, 95, 96, where we spoofed loads of TV. Yes. We played this double act called Mash and Peas. Yes. And they were shown You made Paul Putner dress up as Morph. Paul Putner played Morph. We did a Take Heart <laughs> spoof. We did a Why Don't You spoof. And we spoofed very cheaply and very badly the Victoria Wood special, an audience with Victoria Wood that yes. was always on ITV yeah. when she does the... Uh, have you seen her? Kimberly. Which yeah. I didn't realise was an homage to... Was it Hilda Baker or it was another... It looks... It's a musical... Yeah, a routine. musical routine that she'd sort of updated. And she does, let's do it, let's yeah. do it. And it's amazing. And the stupid thing was, I'd seen it on television when I was 11 or 12 when it first came out and loved it and watched it repeatedly on video, knew every word. And then by the time I was sort of 21, 22, and we were, you know, satirising things. We picked that as a target, and we were vitriolic about it. And it's one of my great regrets, because I, I always thought Victoria Wood was brilliant, and I don't know why... I think we were just looking for our comic voice, and yeah. mm. we were looking to be mischievous, be naughty, and, and it felt funny to us to satirise comedy, because we hadn't seen... Yeah, you you know, in the way that actually, you know, in, in not the nine o'clock news, the two ninnies, uh, the two ninnies mm. that, that, that that Smith and Jones did about uh, uh, the two Ronnies, and actually, I bet you they love the two Ronnies. I bet you they were fans, and but they just it was the moment to do that. That two Ronnies pastiche is is so savage and so fairly spot on. I think about it, and it was done because I think John Lloyd or one of the writers had heard the two Ronnies, or at least one of the Rons complaining about this new punky comedy that was just obscene and he watched the two runnings and went this is all obscene this is all euphemisms for sexual swear words and yeah. things and they were just trying to put, turn the cannons back on the old guys to say you're as dirty as we are yeah and it was it was basically a tit for tat thing it was like on those revenge records well so it was motivated by 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 rage i think well we we had no such <laughs> Vision. That's I the think, risk with, with if you take the piss out of comedy. If you're not as funny as the source material, which we weren't, you don't look good. Yeah, we, and it was just a, a stupid thing. And years later, I'm you know I met Victoria with a couple of times, and I I never mentioned it because I thought well if she doesn't know about it, I don't want to bring it up. Yeah, you know because what's the point of that? But it was it's it's I, I, you know it's one of the things I regret most, which is it just it was the most stupid, pointless 
thing. By the way, it comes to us all. I mean, I our show was polarizing enough and successful enough that now I think it's absolutely fair game to make jokes at our expense. <laughs> you know, and and you know, if you're in your twenties and you're doing comedy, I'm sure there are groups in Edinburgh doing sketches about how shit Little Britain was. You know, I hope there are. There should be because the, we are in that place now. And You're they the are two in, And they're in that place, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it sort of, you know, it's a cycle and it comes to us all. But I think with Victoria Wood, we got it wrong because yeah. we took a piece of comedy that was great, we satirised it badly. I think you should think your questions over more carefully. Yes, well, you, yes, you did I give me a bad lead there. You said that you did no, do both I things didn't. at the same time. I didn't. You gave me a bad lead. I, I don't think you should have said... I think you should... Uh, well... Uh, I hope you're sorry. Look, here's here's the thing that happens, right? Bob Monkhouse was a huge comedian. He spent a lot of his career hosting panel game shows, certainly the latter part of his career, as well as doing stand-up. And when he died, there's not a lot of stuff, of Bob Monkhouse stuff, that you can show on BBC One, really. He did a couple of stand-up specials on ITV or whatever, but basically it's... Opportunity knocks. And all of that. By the way, that's not me being a snob about... I'm not sitting here saying sketch shows are better than panel shows because a show that makes you laugh makes you laugh. And panel shows usually have more laughs in them than... Than, than most scripted comedy. Uh, you're looking at Hoffman again and thinking, yeah. what you left, what you what leave you're behind. Leave behind yeah. Your legacy can be. Your legacy depends on how much you've made and how broadly you've made. Yeah, it. I mean, God, David that, does Britain's Got Talent, yeah. which they won't replay, but he's writing these amazing books. So there'll be yeah. something. To leave oh behind. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's he's what? he's got an amazing legacy, and that's you know that's those books are bigger than Little Britain, and that's brilliant because because David is one of the greatest comedy writers, well, certainly the greatest writer I've worked with, but obviously I haven't worked with that many, but that's not to do him down. I mean, he was every day, I worked with him, he, he was brilliant every single day. <laughs> I mean, we drove each other up the wall, but he was <laughs> never not brilliant. And I'm really pleased that he has those books yeah. because, you know, Britain's Got Talent is fun to do, I imagine, but the books you hear, you know, I mean, that's no accident that those books are as big as they are. I had a chat with, uh, back in the day when we were in bands and things, we were doing uh, Sean Hughes's show yeah, and talking to Sean in the pub afterwards and he said, I've got to give up Buzzcocks. I said, why? You're great on it. It's a great show. It's really, really funny and it's really good. And he went, but it's a poison chalice. He said, it's good money and I know I've got it every year and I could do it forever. But I've got to leave because otherwise I won't do anything. And he felt it really, really acutely that it was going to uh, grab him and hold him and be the only thing he was remembered for. And luckily, Sean's show was a great show, so it's still knocking around. You can still get that. But there is a feeling of, of these shows which are now dominating the comedy landscape. These because they suit stand up, they suit those formats. They're cheap to make. Yeah, and they're certainly less of a risk than doing a narrative or a sketch show. And you can make them in high volume. You can do a dozen of them a year or more. I don't do any panel shows, but I occasionally do QI. That's the only one I'll do. Mm. And Lucy Porter said the same thing. Lucy said, I always do do that one. The rest of them, she went, too competitive. Yeah, it's it's, it's a bear pit. I don't want to go. I mean, I I used to hear stories about comedians going on Have I Got News For You and slaying the audience and then none of their stuff being used oh in the edit. Because you're not anyone's <laughs> priority. And I used to think, my God, if I could actually go there and be funny, manage to be funny, that would be a miracle. But actually then to not even have it on the show, oh, um, <laughs> I would just be like, oh, what's the point of that? I, I, the bear pit, I don't really fancy it. The 
there's a load of good animal stuff in these conversations, isn't there? And not only is there the goat on the aircraft, there's also his octopus yeah. that had tentacles, but originally had two tickles and then three tickles and four tickles. And it's big... outrageous that he goes there and he goes oh, no. all the way through the list as well. <laughs> Just won't let it go, will he? There's the, there's the hedgehog, obviously, which is a wonderful... It's my favourite. ..wonderful uh, bit of work. Yeah. She went into the kitchen and she made some uh, some broth, some hot broth for it, you see? Yeah. And she put it in a little saucer and poured some milk over and, and, and left it there. She didn't want to pick it up because they're so prickly, you see? Is this a very long story? Yes. So she... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> she uh... There's always a mark of a good absurdist is that they reach for the menagerie, basically, yeah. to try and find stuff. Because when you start looking at animals, they they are just very silly if you start to try and understand them or try and parse them. And you go, why? Right, you know, my daughter said to me once a few years ago, why haven't humans got stripes? And I went, I don't know. I don't know why we haven't got stripes. I don't know. It's, you can hear his brain reaching for things. And the joy of this, because mm. it's improvised stuff. And this comes. This is improvised comedy from an era where improvised music and improvised theatre is starting to appear as a sort of beatnik hip thing to do. And the delight is being in on the joke as an audience, knowing that that's, that's the first thing he's thought of. Yeah. And then it's like a trapeze act. Is he going to fall off or is he going to stay on? About what does he have for breakfast? And he just suddenly mm. says, um, I have a I have suckling pig for breakfast. Well, they always have a thing in their mouth. Well, is it an, a, an apple? Not an apple, a pipe. And you got that. Just I can hear your brain doing this, and you're trying to say the most annoying thing. That's him talking about slimming as well, isn't oh, he? Yeah, He's cut down. Diet. He now only has a small breakfast of a suckling pig. <laughs> just dieting. <laughs> what would he have been? What else would he have done if he'd lived? Do you think he would have been? He sounds like the kind of person who would have been in films. You would have cast him like you cast... It's easy. Like you would have cast um, Stanley Unwin. Yeah, or like you cast Benny Hill in The Italian Job. Right. He's like a stunt piece of casting. He's Peter Sellers in The Lady Killers, a turn from the radio. Who, Frankie Howard turns up in things. He'd be one of those stunt guy, turns. Did you know that guy? I can't remember what he's called, but there's a guy who turns up in films sometimes and he has this catchphrase, Oh, calamity! <laughs> have you seen that guy? No, I don't think so. Was this from the 50s or from... Yeah. He goes, oh, calamity. And it'll be a leftover catchphrase. Can I my phone? Yeah. Can I bring out my phone? Yeah. yeah. And I'll look it up and, and I'll get... And have his name. That is, right. reaching into his trousers. That would be problematic. Right, who said, oh, calamity? Oh, calamity. Who said... I'm guessing there's an iPhone X. Who said, oh, Robertson Hare was a British... Comedy actor who came to prominence on the stage in the famous Aldwych farces with Ralph Lynn and Tom Walls, in which he often lost his trousers. <laughs> he appeared in the first of over 35 films in 1930s, Harold Twine in Rookery Nook. But he's just his thing. He just always said, oh, let me look it up. Oh, calamity. Oh, calamity. He was in a show called All Gas and Gators. Oh, which right. yes, yes, yes. He's the archdeacon. Um, those those faces and catchphrases. I mean, British cinema suited very much that. I thought Carry On is. It's a bunch of turns who've got a bit of shtick that they do. Yeah, and I, I could see in the same way as I don't know Peter Euston often, James Robertson Justice, Robert Morley. There's another old tough. I used to love Robert Morley. Yeah. Oh gosh, you see, fruity dissemblers. Yes, this is these are these sort of Hofnungian old toffs. People who are sort of half man, half armchair. Those sort of people. <laughs> 
So what, what, what do we say that we thought he'd be doing now? We thought he'd be in those films. Yeah. So what, let's think. But well, would he be regarded like... I mean, he's he's there just before Peter Cook starts doing this. Oh, yes, yeah, and before... That's right. He, oh, well, yeah, he's in the 50s. When did Cook start? About 1960? Yeah, mm. well, Beyond the Fringes. Beyond the Fringes, the fringes 60s. You can see a connection between this and E.L. Wisty and with Arthur Street Griebling and things. These sort of slightly... Uh, yeah, slightly disjointed, rambling characters with a, with a sort of broken mind, but not mad. So, Arthur, um... Ah. Could you tell us what first led you to this way of life? Uh, teaching ravens to fly underwater. Yes. I think it probably all dates back to a very early age when I was uh, quite a young fellow. My mother, Lady Beryl Street Gribling, you know, the wonderful dancer, 107 tomorrow and still dancing. Uh, she came up to me in the conservatory. I was pruning some walnuts. And she said, uh, Arthur, if you don't get underwater and start teaching ravens to fly, I'll smash your stupid face off. <laughs> and I think it was this that sort of first started my interest mm. in the whole business of uh, yes. getting them underwater. Yes. Well, there's also um, Vivian Stanshaw. Yes, yeah, yeah, Sir Henry yeah, of Rawlinson End is the same yeah. thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, in that same kind of vein. Miss Yes! I don't know what I want, but I want it now. Fried or fried, dear? No! Fried? I want my meat burnt, like St. Joe. Bring me Calvin's horseradish with vicious mustards to pierce the tongue like Cardigan's lancers. Once you get to Vivian Stanshaw from here and Rawlinson End, there's a link to the Blue Jam monologues, to that sort of slightly bruised, slow thinking that you're not... That people aren't quite keeping up with you. For some reason, you're slower than everyone else, and it's their fault. Yes. Which is a very funny shtick. I love it when people bring something on that you go, we haven't celebrated this, and it's great. Has, has anyone brought on their own, <laughs> their own show? <laughs> that would be amazing. It's not really appreciated enough. Actually, I should know, have just know? said Pompey Do. <laughs> I put a lot into that, and eight people watched it. Well, Pompey Do, do, do is a brilliant thing to talk about, by the way, because well, it now, is Hoffnut. Well, now I'm embarrassed. But it is Hoffnut. Well, there's a Hoffnut, yes. It's noises. It, yeah. The point is, it is the noise yeah, it's of insp- It's inspired by um, Hoffnut, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably Julian Dutton, who you co-wrote it with. Yes, you? co-created the character he, with and co-wrote some of it, yeah. Is he a, is he a Hoffman fan as well? I don't know, actually, but I think he, if anybody would know who Hoffman was, Julian would, because he's a great, Julian is a man who exists in that time. He's set in the 1950s, yes. isn't he? Yes. Yes. He's, he's yes. a comedy archaeologist as he well, was, isn't he? So he's, he's great, and his John Le Mazurier impression yes. is unrivaled. <laughs> That's what you want. But again, there's someone who... You're talking about comic performers here who have... Like there are comic performers who have a silhouette, as in you can just see Laurel and Hardy or Eric and Ernie, you can see from that silhouette who they are. Mm. Eddie Izzard, I was saying, has a silhouette you can recognise straight away, that bobbing crouch. There are people who've got a signature noise that Pompidou was about reducing people to their no- to their, yeah. their noises. Well, he was a... No, 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 no. No, no. I pulled it and I got fervency, so no. <laughs> oh, Roly Birkin is the other person who's in. Roly Birkin, Paul Whitehouse of course. Paul Whitehouse is Roly Birkin. Birkin. Pure Hoffnung. It's very Hoffnung-y. Cairo. Yes, very good. I've maybe passing through this very, very unstable politically. Pandemonium. The luggage for myself. 
Rambling, shambling, stately well, homes of Britain people. They're just this. It's a lovely noise. <laughs> I think we should just fade into the distance on a little. Which we ride off in a noise. It's a gentleman's club noise. Probably a reasonable thing for me. I think probably the best way to. And the, probably the right way to end the broadcast is to sort of end it something like this. I don't know if you feel the same way. Well, Matt Lucas, yes, yes, you Lucas. thank you, yes. thank you very much for coming on Rule of Three. When well we, left, well done, well done. Thank you. When does it begin? <laughs> 